Crikey, <laughs> preach on that one then. <laughs> Here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to need the, uh, the grace of the Lord, aren't we, to uh, work through this well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the scriptures and how they speak to us, transform us, and change us. Pray that today that we might be attentive to everything you have to say to us and obedient to your will. Give us wisdom and strength and understanding. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we move into a whole new phase of the book of 1 Corinthians. And essentially what we have here is answers to questions that this random group of people in Corinth have been posing to Paul. Now, we better recap a little bit to make sense of this. Uh, you remember that Corinth was the exciting cosmopolitan city not far away from ancient Athens. It was a place where things were happening. It was a place where you could go from east to west uh, across a shipping lane, avoiding going all the way around the Greek archipelago, all the way around like that. Just go across just a few miles if you parked in one port, carried your stuff to the other port, and, and went out there. So it attracted a lot of sailors. And uh, in sailing ports, um, as people have talked about having a girl in every port, uh, Corinth was one of those places where you could have a girl on one side and a girl on the other side, just a couple of miles apart, uh, two ports close to hand. Immorality was rife in Corinth. It was a place uh, well known for it. But it was a new town, an exciting market, um, up-and-coming town where people thought they were investing in the great new ideas. They loved being entertained. If Big Brother was going to be filmed anywhere, it would have been filmed in Corinth. It was one of those places uh, ripe for Channel 5 to get any of their documentaries into or daytime TV programs into. And from this context, the new church are trying to work out how should they then live now that they have the Holy Spirit of God in them. And Paul's made the point in the last chapter that if you have the Holy Spirit in you, something's happened to you. And it's a very key thing that's happened to you. You have become something. You have become a temple. And the temple, as they would have known from the surrounding architecture around them, was the place where one of the gods lived. There were temples to Diana. There were temples to all sorts of Greek and Roman gods scattered around the place. And they would have known that that was the place that you went for worship. So to be called a temple was very vivid. Can you imagine it? You're, I suppose it's like us being called a church. You are a church. Don't desecrate it. Now, if you know anything about our churches, uh, I'm sure you do. Um, our church building here is used for all sorts of things, isn't it? Uh, and every now and then I have uh, someone come in. Uh, from the outside, uh, when the cafe's open or there's some toddler event going on, and uh, they give me a 25-minute lecture on how we've desecrated the building by allowing other activities to happen within the church building. Um, so when you're having your lunch, uh, have a little gulp and <laughs> think about whether you're desecrating the house of God. Now, of course, um, I resist their argument because what we're trying to do is create a home, which is what God loves to live in. He loves to live in our, our homes, the community that we make, uh, and uh, in our prayer. And we believe that, that what is sacred invades what is 
uh, allegedly secular, that when we're eating our lunch together or sitting on the floor uh, with young people who are trying to look after children, um, we are doing as every bit as much a spiritual activity as when we sit now and pray, uh, because God is in all of these things. But yet, nevertheless, you get, there's a hint of something good in there, isn't there? There's a hint on something should be set apart for godly purposes. And what Paul is saying here is, folks, you are the something that must be set apart. In some ways, it doesn't matter what the building's set apart for, as long as the people inside it are set apart for godly things. So I've run churches in nightclubs in the past. Uh, and if people who are temples walk into the nightclub, the presence of God comes, doesn't it? Two or three of you are gathered in my name. I am there with you. So our bodies are temples. Uh, he, he really hammers this, this down in verse 19 of chapter 6. You are not your own. You have been brought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And he's already said slightly earlier on that um, all other sins are, are just sins that, uh, that happen. But if you sin against your body, uh, you sin against the temple of the Holy Spirit. So he makes the point that sinning sexually um, are sins against your own body. Verse 18 of chapter 6. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside their body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit, bought at a price. They're big, big, big things, aren't they? And, and hard in our culture, of course, where we're used to assuming that we have total self-determination on what we do with ourselves. As long as it's not hurting anyone else, um, I'll do what I like. Uh, and this passage says, well, actually, it impacts on God because <laughs> he's purchased your body. It's a temple. It's not just for you to use however you feel about it. So then, chapter 7, and we'll work through this. Uh, now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Now, we don't know if that's a question or a quote um, or Paul's response. <laughs> um, did they write saying, is it good for a man to marry? Did they write saying, it is not good for a man to marry? Or is Paul saying, uh, it is good for a man uh, not to marry? Hard, hard to tell um, from the original text. Um, but as he goes on, it makes a bit more sense. Um, since there is so much immorality, each person, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now he's saying, because the world you live in is so complicated, uh, probably the only safe way of surviving as temples of the Holy Spirit is to pair off man and woman together. And then you can express your sexuality fully within marriage. Uh, and then he carries on, uh, what this means. Um, and, and before I go into that, it's worth thinking about the author of this text. Um, so Paul, as he's going to tell us, is not a married person uh, in giving this advice. Um, he, he, he isn't currently married. However, um, it is it's interesting to think, has he been married? <laughs> has he been married? Culturally, at the stage that he's at when he goes to the Damascus Road... It, you would have expected that he was married. And there's more than a little hint in this passage and the surrounding ones that he may well have been rejected by his wife at the point that he um, chose to follow the, the way, what was called the way, or Christianity as we now have it. So it may well be that he is a man who was, as would have been customary at his age, married, 
but was rejected by his wife um, uh, because of what he was now following. And that sort of colors how we read the remaining verses of this passage. So here he is. He's, he's clear that the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. He's talking about sexual relations. The wife's body does not belong to her, her alone, but also to her husband. Uh, that would have been uh, uncontroversial. The next statement, far more controversial. Uh, look at it. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. And, and saying, actually, there's a mutuality in relationship. There's an equality in relationship. It's not just that the wife is there to be used by the husband, but also that the, the, the husband has to give himself for the wife. There's a giving rather than a using is what's being described. Um, a very beautiful thing. And even in 2018, this is very topical, isn't it? There's a report out just yesterday talking about how, um, how in sexual relations in our, in our society, it's still considered that it's okay for a man to have pleasure and a woman to have pain. And Paul's shouting against that. He's saying in the context of loving relationship, it should be where you're giving to each other, not causing pain, but voluntarily and lovingly giving to each other. And he carries on even more um, uh, interestingly here in verse 5 saying, and don't stop having sex, <laughs> is basically what verse 5 says, except by mutual consent and for a time. Uh, and that's for fasting, for, to pray. Uh, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's very gritty, very human advice here, saying actually if there's a, a time in your marriage, you're not having good sexual relations, the chances are that at that moment, uh, the temptation is going to come in. Someone else might turn your eye, and that's going to be a problem for you. Um, so uh, have sex, and if you stop for a while, make sure you have sex again afterwards. <laughs> Um, and then, then he, he does an interesting backtrack, verse 6 and 7. He says, I'm saying all this as a concession, not as a command. Uh, it's good for you to be married. It's good for you to be in relationship. But I really wish, actually, you didn't need to be. Um, I wish that you, call, you could all be as I am. Um, but everyone's got their own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. I, he's saying, have got a gift to be single. Um, and he will argue that that allows him much more flexibility to serve the Lord, to be responsive to God, uh, than he was if he was married. Um, so there we are. Are we all with us so far? Uh, here's the basic thing he's saying. Uh, it's an evil time. Sexuality um, is a big part of us. It's a big driver in us. Um, so, so that you don't end up sinning, pair off man and woman together. Um, give yourselves to each other. Don't deprive uh, each other of sex except by mutual consent uh, but this is a concession if you could be single life would be easier for you because <laughs> frankly if you're worrying about the needs of a uh, husband or wife um, or children that's going to be a massive distraction from the key purpose which is sharing the gospel with people uh, throughout the known world before Jesus comes again which could be round the corner okay so that's our first big paragraph our next passage then is aimed at those who are unmarried or widows or widowers. Um, and of course, in our, in our cultural context now, um, I guess into this we have to add in um, those who have been married and are no longer married and 
um, all of the many permutations that we're all very aware of uh, in, in the very messy lives that we all live in today. So to those who are unmarried or widows, divorcees, etc., um, he's saying this, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. What a romantic. <laughs> you should have it on a wedding card, didn't you? Uh, you were burning too much with passion, uh, therefore you got married. Or, or a proposal. Imagine bending the knee, going, Honey, I'm burning too much with passion. <laughs> Marry me. <laughs> I don't know who would seize the day on that one or not, but there you go. Um, that, that's the basic argument. If you're burning too much with passion, don't wait 16 years. Get on with it. Get married. Um, verse 10. Uh, to the married, I give this command. Actually, so just to backtrack on that. It, it, one of the issues we have now is uh, post-Charles and Diana, and look how that one worked out, um, the cost of weddings has gone up astronomically. Um, some of you will remember weddings before Charles and Diana, and often they were relatively simple occasions. You'd come to the church, you'd get married, you'd have tea and cake, boom, go off on a, my grandparents went on a cycling honeymoon <laughs> after the war. Um, didn't cost a lot of money. But they were, they were done and dusted at, at 23, 24, or, and sometimes quite a lot younger. Uh, marriage was uh, public, um, covenantal, contractual, um, but not expensive. Uh, and now we have a massive issue in that people assume that they have to spend thousands and thousands of pounds to get married, which means that it gets pushed back, 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 back until I've got a deposit for the house and all the other things. And actually, one of the things as a church we need to do is, is break that and say, look, if you would like to get married, we can make that happen. And one of the great gifts we have with um, our church buildings is that we can have receptions in them that are lovely and gorgeous, but don't have to cost the universe. And it's been wonderful having church families getting married in one or other of our buildings and having receptions in them as well, so that they're not breaking the bank and nothing's slowing down um, that they're getting married. We've uh, actually got a, a lovely member of the church family who's just got engaged, um, and uh, they're going to have their, their wedding and reception in our, our two buildings. It's uh, um, our, one of our um, uh, dear, dear uh, girls who's grown up in the church family uh, down the years, uh, Jenny Rideout. Congratulations to her and Josh, and looking forward to their wedding in July. Um, already organized, sorted out here in the buildings. And it's important that as a church that we make it possible for people to get married without spending vast amounts of money so that we can do what this says. Uh, if you need to get married, get married. Um, and let's not wait for years. Okay, verse 10. To the married, I give this command, um, not I, but the Lord's colon. Um, now, before I read what he uh, says here um, over the next uh, four or five verses, I want us to remember um, a sermon on divorce that Nicola gave five or six years ago. It's an extraordinarily good sermon, one of the most listened to that we've had on our podcasts. Um, and she unpicks the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels on divorce. And I want us just to remember that before we read through this, because the whole biblical picture on divorce is actually more nuanced than Paul is going to give in these five verses. Because Jesus allows... Uh, two 
reasons for divorce um, in, in the Gospels. One is marital unfaithfulness, and the other is that sense of being locked into an abusive and hurting relationship. And you can go back to Nicola's teaching on that to, 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 to look it out. Um, but the full force of these verses shouldn't be reduced either, because it is so clear in here, uh, the sense that it is an utter tragedy when two people who have covenanted together till death us do part, part before death. Um, it is sad. And uh, sometimes it uh, feels inevitable, and sometimes it is inevitable, sometimes it, it's, it's necessary. I've only once in my pastoral ministry advised someone to get divorced, um, and that was for the protection of children who were in danger. Um, so this is what he says. He says, a wife must not separate from her husband. If she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife um, who is not a believer and is willing to live with her, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Um, it's a strong teaching here. And this would have been the basic standard in the church at the time. It would have been a sense of actually, you hang in there, you work through things. You don't throw away easily what you've covenanted into and promised into. Uh, and why the strength of the teaching? You don't have to bring strong rules and boundaries uh, if it's easy to keep to something, do you? If it's easy to remain walking hand in hand, uh, then you don't need strong words saying walk hand in hand. <laughs> but the pull apart through neglect or circumstances or other distractions or addictions can be very, very high. So here's the strong rule. Don't divorce. And what underlies this? What underlies this is a beautiful piece of theology. That marriage is something that dates back right into the Old Testament in terms of God being married. Did you know God's married in the Old Testament? He's married to the people of Israel. He describes her as his bride. In the New Testament, Jesus is married to the church. God doesn't break his relationship with Israel. Jesus doesn't break his relationship with the church. That's the picture that we have for these relationships. So neither should we break with the one that we have covenanted to love. Now, the point of separation, everything may have gone almost too far to come back on. Um, so that's why we have to remember that death comes by a thousand cuts often. And to put the healing in, put the time in, put the repairing in, when and where that's still possible. And the second part of what we just read, uh, 12 and 13, deals with the fascinating issue, which may have been very personal to Paul, as I've said at the beginning of this talk, where someone has come to be a member of the Christian community and their spouse is not a member of the Christian community. Um, and he acknowledges that following Jesus might pull apart this couple. And what, is it, what does he say? Does he say, dumb down your Christian commitment? to maintain the relationship? Um, no. He says, your fundamental commitment to Jesus might cause difficulty 
in your marriage relationship. Um, and what should you do then if you're the believer? Well, if you're the believer, uh, do not break with your husband or wife. Don't say, oh, he's so unspiritual, he doesn't get me. Or she's, she knows so little of Jesus. Um, I'm going to go with that um, worship leader or <laughs> preacher or whatever I've just seen at church. Um, stay with them. Commit to them. Why? Verse 14. The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Fascinating. There are all sorts of things you could say about infant baptism and covenantal families coming out of that, that verse. There's clearly something that if you have a Christian parent, the assumption is that the family is somehow held holy in this verse. It doesn't exactly say how that works out. But it has this implication that an unbelieving spouse can be somehow sanctified by their wife or husband. An extraordinary claim, especially when we're so used to thinking of our individual response to God and have we personally responded in faith. Um, He carries on a bit more on this in verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It's clearly not utterly automatic. It's not like a slot machine. Um, uh, I become a Christian, therefore my wife is automatically right with God. But there's something of a territory that if I'm living in my home with the kingdom of God in me, it's very likely to overspill to my spouse over time and very likely that they will respond because they've seen it. Now, you'll remember the story of the mother who was praying for her child um, and she was absolutely furious that he hadn't come to know the Lord Jesus. Uh, And she'd given him tracks and she'd sent him on Christian conferences and she'd left him Christian music playing on the radio downstairs uh, whenever he came downstairs. And she kneels on the ground and says, Lord, please will you remove whatever the obstacle to my son's conversion is? And poof, uh, she disappears in a cloud of smoke. (laughs) Now, I'm sure there's many a spouse who's made the same mistake with their unbelieving husband or wife. (laughs) But yet, he says in verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, then they can do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called you to live in peace. Yet, there's a good chance that what's at work in you is going to spill over to them. So hang in there. You're not perfect because of any right of your own. It's God who changes you and sanctifies you. Uh, so hang in there. Well, in next week's instalment, so you know you want to come back uh, next Friday, we will be looking at the extraordinary issues um, about the places God has put us in, in the past, and then we'll be looking at virgins and whether or not they should get married um, and uh, picking up the wonderful uh, thing about how an unmarried person is concerned about the Lord affairs, how they can please the Lord, but a married person is concerned about the affairs um, not meaning literal uh, marital affairs, but the, the go- proceeds and goings on of their spouse and so forth. So some great teaching from the rest of 1 Corinthians 7 to pick up on. Uh, but for now, this uh, basic household rules on marriage and divorce and probably underlying it all, there is this, this confidence, a confidence that actually if you follow God, 
He's going to change people around you. He's going to impact people around you. And also a confidence that it's worth giving him the fullness of who you are. And actually, in him is enough. In him is enough. And the best thing for all of us is to find a peace with him, our glorious and wonderful God. Maybe I could finish with one, one uh, amusing anecdote uh, that I heard from a, a retired clergy person recently. Um, he was a, he was a, a bachelor uh, at the time and was uh, a preacher, and he, um, he was praying about whether he should get married or not. And he, uh, he said that in the scripture, it, it says that God can supply all my needs. Um, and I need to know if you can provide for me in, in a way a wife could. And he was describing to me, uh, in front of his, his now wife, actually, um, an extraordinary experience of God he had, where he felt God physically just overwhelm him in the most wonderful ways. And he said that in that moment, God proved to him that he could be everything he needed in every aspect of his being. And from that, actually, he ended up getting married a year or so later, but from a place not of deficit, feeling I haven't got what I need, but of sufficiency, knowing in God I've already got what I need. And this is a a wonderful way of working this out, even beyond that. Friends, God is sufficient. He is able to supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus. And he is good. And his ways are there for our benefit and not for our harm. So I commend to you again the scriptures uh, in St. Paul's letters to the Corinthians that we might order our lives in the way that is laid out for us there. May God bless his word to us today. Amen.